All right, on today's podcast, we have James Polis. He is the founder and executive editor of the American Mind at the Claremont Institute and the co-founder and publisher of Return at New Founding and also the author of a new book called Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War, which we're going to get into on today's podcast. And he joins us today. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, James. How are you? Real good. Pleased to be with you. So human forever. I want to I want to dive into this. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? It seems like I've been following you on Twitter. It seems like this is something that that you, you know, really believe in in your bones that perhaps technology is not doing us doing us right. So how how did you get into writing this? What what was the impetus? Well, so uh, somewhat belatedly, I, I finally got around to finishing my my PhD in political theory, uh, and uh, sort of by coincidence, it, this happened uh, right after um, the uh, the twenty sixteen election saga came to its uh, at least temporary conclusion uh, with the inauguration. Um, and it was clear that that things were changing dramatically, um, and that uh, the the hope of my first book, "The Art of Being Free," uh, which was that Americans could learn uh, how to uh, live well despite living in a society that made them crazy, sort of in uh, that was dashed a bit. You know, I I looked around and what I saw were uh, many millions of people saying, "No, actually, we want to become crazier." Uh, we want to be more unhinged, more detached from reality, um, and uh, and so the natural question was why. Um, and uh, although there were some, you know, plausible uh, answers kicking around in in the political conversation, uh, it struck me that although you know ideology is still important in in certain respects, uh, it, it wasn't really sufficient to explain um, exactly what was unfolding. Uh, and you know, a little bit of reflection after that led me to what is now the inescapable conclusion, which many share, uh, that in fact, it's something about uh, the way that technology has, has developed and advanced uh, that has uh, put people psychologically and spiritually in a position where they feel and recognize uh, that the sort of mo- suite of modern and postmodern answers to the ultimate questions about uh, who we are, why we should bother being who we are, um, and what makes it worth being who we are, uh, even just at the level of how we can fill our time in a way that isn't totally pointless, uh, th- that that suite of answers uh, was collapsing um, under the weight of, uh, of a, a sort of technological apocalypse, a, a revelation of the power uh, of a new kind of technology, uh, and that people were scrambling uh, sort of as fast as, as they could manage uh, to try to create um, frameworks of, of dreams or fantasies or, you know, the imagination, uh, which used to be the most powerful force in the world, the human imagination, before digital technology came along, uh, in the hopes of, of creating a framework um, that was extreme enough uh, in a new way that it would be kind of hardened against the disenchantment 
that they saw um, technology just sort of reeking across the the normie landscape. Uh, you know, main mainstream uh, dream patterns. Uh, you know, normie sort of neoliberal uh, dreams uh, were being dashed, and uh, the the feeling was setting in. I think that. Um, that you were not going to make it in the digital age that was unfolding uh, unless you managed to find refuge in, in a sort of uh, uh, complex of beliefs that was hardened in some way against these waves of disenchantment. Uh, and I think what we've found over you know, the ensuing years uh, is that the, the complex of beliefs uh, that is needed, uh, that, that, that does harden you against the uh, the disenchantment coming from from the the triumph of digital machines over our world in a way that no person or group of people can triumph uh, is um, is a theological basket of beliefs um, a theological framework that that really harkens back and 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 retrieves the very deepest uh, cultural and spiritual resources of one's civilization uh, and so, you know, marinating in this stuff and, and studying it really from from scratch, you know, with, with beginner's mind as a political theorist, you know, you usually don't get a lot of, of Marshall McLuhan, you get a lot of Hobbes and that sort of thing. Um, it, it struck me that events were now moving so quickly uh, and the future was was onrushing in such a powerful way that that most people did not understand and were bewildered by. Uh, that really on a professional level, you know, if my, if my PhD was going to be worth anything, if I had any right to sort of call myself a, a doctor or whatever, um, I had to have something intelligent, worthwhile, valuable to say about what was happening. Uh, and then it needed to be said right away. Uh, and, and ideally in a way that, that didn't just lecture people about what world we were in and what to do, but modeled what we could do in that world to preserve our humanity. Um, and so, you know, I wrote this book very quickly. Uh, I, I was granted a, a sort of micro sabbatical, um, knocked it out in about three weeks. Of course, the end notes took longer than that, but that's that's life. Um, and really just wanted to get it done and get it done in under 300 words so that people could access it very quickly. Um, this was before all of the supply chain chaos, uh, which has, you know, for, for mainstream publishers, they're looking at a, apparently a six to seven month delay in getting books out on the shelves during the holiday season, which is, you know, a sort of apocalypse in its own right. I read that this morning, uh, Peter Zion, I'd subscribed to his newsletter and he had something in there where they can't get the paper for the books. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, you know, I was I was fortunate enough to to decide um, to to do this book completely off the the reservation of of the uh, the mainstream publishing industry. No New York publishing houses, uh, no Amazon, no Bezos. Um, through through two means: one, uh, uh, private publishing, uh, private press uh, with its own paper supply. Um, so so I was able to get physical copies of the book going with very quick turnaround on demand. Uh, and then, you know, in, in terms of modeling the, the solution, um, uh, through a, a friend of mine who's created a site called Canonic, canonic.xyz is the site, uh, and it is a it is a blockchain site for publishing, self-publishing uh, books and other works. Um, and so the book will be uh, coming uh, as, as an NFT and then uh, on sale uh, at Canonic um, uh, for sale in, in, uh, in Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, if, uh, you're listening to this and want to know more, if you just go over to, uh, humanforever.us, humanforever.us, uh, you can, uh, plug in your email and you'll be among the first to know, uh, you will join thousands in becoming the first to know, 
exactly when the uh, the NFTs and the sales drop. Uh, so you know that's all uh, a long way of saying that um, the urgency that I think everyone feels right now is is has become out of sync with the traditional publishing industry um, and leaves people feeling uh, even worse about the fact that the distance between themselves and the technologies that seem to be ruling the world is is growing. Uh, so you know Americans and others, um, if ordinary people can't sort of get get their hands dirty and get their hands on the controls of compute of of databases, they're just going to find themselves reduced to a very passive state in other people's databases. Uh, and so what I wanted to, to model with this book, in addition to just digging into the issues in a, in a sort of intellectual and, and accessible way, uh, is to show that, you know, Bitcoin isn't just a way to sort of stack sats or like make a number go up. I mean, a lot of people are doing that kind of thing and having a good time doing it. I'm not here to, to spoil their fun, uh, but I am here to say like that by itself is, is not really enough to ensure that that ordinary people can, can dive into uh, the the uh, culture of telling compute what to do in a powerful way um, and have a good time doing it. Uh, so that's what this book uh, is is here to demonstrate. And uh, that's what it has to say. So before we get into the specifics, the three the three week time period where you wrote the book, what was the environment in which you wrote that it were you away in some secluded cabin in the woods with just you know your laptop and a rifle or was this uh or you just thought you were on dad duty and you somehow just got it done in three weeks like what does that sprint look like for you uh not not quite as as glamorous as uh as the cabin in the woods um i like to i like to compose long works uh just kind of propped up on my elbows in bed um, not sure why kind of always been that way. You know, when I was a kid, I would do homework sort of just like propped up on the floor. Um, now the floor is a little too hard and the, the bed's a little bit, a little bit softer. Uh, and so I just kind of, kind of set up camp, you know, with, uh, towers of books spread around me. Um, and, uh, you know, it's summer, uh, I'm, I'm a summer birthday guy. So summer is always my favorite season. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I draw a lot of strength from sunlight when it's, cloudy and overcast i find it very difficult to sort of motivate or think clearly uh so it was ideal in that sense and uh you know it, it kind of helped get me in in the frame of mind of uh of someone who wanted to you know among many other things suggest that the the civilization of the mediterranean is one that has kind of unique and powerful things to tell us about how to preserve uh, uh a human way of life in a digital age now let's let's level set here so when you, when you talk about technology, which, which specific technologies are you talking about? You said compute. So I assume, you know, we're, we're talking about computers and everything that stems from that. Uh, and then what time frame is this is kind of like the, the argument you're making, what time frame are, are the technologies warping the humanity of each person? Yeah. So the distinction that I would make is, you know, back in the, um, between the forties and the sixties, let's say, uh, you had um, you had folks like uh, like Marshall McLuhan and like Norbert Wiener out there uh, who you know this is to summarize uh, warned that you know you can't achieve a sort of perfect level of determinacy in programming and that uh, Wiener analogized the problem uh, explicitly to the the old monkey's paw problem you know careful what you wish for you just might get it. Um, if you know he he was concerned with the way that that uh, the military industrial complex was really looking at using uh, computers to run um, the the nuclear weapons systems of of various countries, 
uh, in the hopes that you know you could, if you tell a computer what to do, it'll execute on the instructions perfectly uh, in a way that you know maybe human beings won't do. Uh, whereas in reality, what we learned is the closest we came to a nuclear exchange was was only avoided uh, because of the human being sitting at the council going like, I don't know, I just have a bad feeling about this. And on balance, I'm going to not press the button. Um, and so uh, it was it was important in that period of time that uh, to the, the best um, uh, critics of outsourcing responsibility to computers, uh, that um, that determinacy was not going to bring paradise on earth where, you know, we could sort of find a perfect language in mathematics that we could use to, uh, to solve for humanity by making the machines do the things that we had lost confidence that we could do well or well enough ourselves. Uh, but, you know, during that period of time, uh, you know, Marshall McLuhan, um, by the time the eighties rolled around, uh, was doing his, his best academic work where he was complementing Aristotle's theory of four causes. Uh, with his and his son's uh, theory of media effects. Um, and they sort of created this tetrad that that was meant to match up with Aristotle's four causes, uh, not in a one-to-one -one way, but in the sense that all of these four things can be, can be operative or working at the same time in different ways. Um, and so uh, one of the, uh, the media effects uh, that the McLuhan's emphasized uh, was retrieval. Uh, so one effect is obsolescence. That one makes a lot of sense to us. New technology comes along and, oh, it makes certain things obsolete. Uh, that's become kind of a truism for people. Uh, but for the McLuhan's, uh, there was another media effect that was just as powerful, just as important, and you know, in some ways even more powerful for, for a reason we'll get into, uh, and that was retrieval. Uh, that was you know, when there's a, a change in communications technology in the, in the dominant medium, it's not just you know, a linear change that makes, uh, that makes sort of relegate certain things to, to the historical dustbin or whatever. Uh, it actually reaches back, perhaps very deep into the past, and retrieves things, uh, patterns of thinking, senses and sensibilities, perceptions, uh, into the present world, uh, which is, you know, really difficult for people to wrap their minds around, especially if they, you know, have, are sort of uh, born and raised in that kind of uh, that that uh, that neoliberal uh, theoretical milieu where you know progress is always cumulative and incremental and linear. Uh, you know, the, they're very allergic to the idea that a tech that you can you can create a technological innovation and it can almost of its own accord sort of reach back into the past that you thought you had foreclosed and reintroduce, um, you know, really powerful cultural phenomena back into everyday life. Um, and so uh, so McLuhan's kind of shorthand for what it is that the that the computer retrieved uh, was um, uh, I, I think the phrase was perfect memory, total and exact. Uh, and, you know, McLuhan would be the first to say that human memory doesn't work in the same way as uh, computer memory. Uh, but that kind of reappearance, um, something that, you know, really hadn't hadn't worked as the foundation of a of a society of a civilization uh, in, in the West since uh, the scribal days when, you know, you had lots of monks sitting in lots of scriptoriums just kind of recording, writing down. Uh, for the purposes of recollection, uh, as much of the the knowledge of the world as they could. Uh, so suddenly, this is back, and you know that's a big uh, that's a big threat to uh, to the rule of of human imagination. It, it it's humiliating, I think, to a lot of people in a way that makes them upset. Feel like uh, that being human isn't what it used to be. Um, I don't think that's true, but that's that's kind of the feeling. Um, 
and so the you know the the bulk of the best criticism of of uh, technology uh, that that came down to us before the internet really took over uh, was one that was focused on the relationship between really like one one person and one machine or a handful of people and a handful of machines. Uh, criticism that was really directed at you know the the likes of the Manhattan Project, the people in charge of the Manhattan Project. Uh, you know, Oppenheimer, uh, von Neumann, uh, you know, the Martians, uh, those, those kinds of folks. Uh, because really the computer had not been commodified, it had not been democratized. Uh, and so what's the big change and why am I relaying all this history? The big change is that what really makes digital technology the way that it is, uh, is that the unit of, um, of analysis or the unit of compute uh, ceases to be the individual machine. Um, and I would argue can't even really best be understood as the network, but is is really rather the swarm, a swarm of of devices of entities that is uh, fully interoperable. Um, the way in which those those devices take shape and take take form, and the way in which I think we need to understand their behavior and their actions, uh, is is through the the form of the swarm. Uh, where the identity is a pooled or collective one, uh, where, you know, I mean, for human beings, we like being every once in a while being part of a mob or part of a mass, you disappear into the crowd. Uh, that can be freaky, but it can also be fun. Um, but the thing that gives it that kind of frisson for us is, is that uh, we experience both identity and difference at the same time. Uh, we, we, in a certain respect, feel a little bit interchangeable. Uh, but we also feel incommensurable. You know, we're, we're not pooling consciousness. We're not merging our bodies, uh, literally. Um, well, you know, digital devices, uh, whether it's hardware or software, you know, whether it's visible or invisible, um, they don't care about losing their individuality. Uh, they do not have the sort of inbuilt um, uh, appreciation for and longing for incommensurability that makes us human beings who we are. Uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the challenge that we face right now um, is not as simple and straightforward as, as the one that the likes of Wiener and McLuhan identified. Uh, it's one of a, a fundamentally new type of, of entity on the planet with a new type of organization uh, and one which is powerful enough to, uh, to really rule or dominate the whole world uh, to a degree that, you know, it's it, it, that human beings wielding dreams and fantasies cannot. Uh, the, the bots have taken over. Uh, software has eaten the world. Um, we're all kind of cyborgs now in a certain limited sense. Uh, and no one ideology, no one civilization uh, is, is so powerful that it can rule all of those machines. Uh, so that's, you know, that's how I, I treat digital technology in the book. That's kind of my point of departure. Uh, the, 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 uh, the inherently pluralistic world that is emerging from the triumph of a kind of technology that may universalize itself, but, you know, doesn't really universalize any, any one human creed. Now, when you talked about the memory of the computer, now, is that, is that your argument or is that McLuhan's argument that you're building on? Yeah, so I'm building off McLuhan, but it's not, you know, just McLuhan, of course, at, at this point, there are plenty of folks out there who say, you know, look, uh, the, the brain is not a computer, uh, the mind is not reducible to the brain, uh, the body is not reducible to the mind, the human is not reducible to the body. Uh, you know, we have souls and, you know, you don't have to be an adherent to any one particular civilization's religion in order to recognize this. Uh, you can go all the way back uh, to Aristotle, who was, you know, relatively light on, on theology, uh, compared to other sort of key Western theorists that emerged, uh, over the ensuing millennia. 
but you know, uh, he he talks about anima, about the soul, uh, and and characterized the soul or anima as um, as the uh, you know I'll, I'll put it this way because it makes sense to contemporary ears as a sort of environmental condition that had a formative effect on the uh, on the on the development and structure and identity of the living being, uh, and that created a fundamental primal distinction between the living and the non-living, between the animate and the inanimate. Um, what we've done with uh, digital technology is we've created uh, things that move around and are in a certain respect autonomous, uh, but are not alive. Um, and intriguingly, if you look back at all, really all the ancient civilizations, uh, the concept of what we would call robots was not foreign to them. Um, they all had, you know, a degree of science and a degree of mythology that was sufficient to um, to imagine and characterize, uh, but also to an extent to build these kind of uh, uh, ancient automata, um, you know, largely for the sake of kind of parlor tricks or like an imperial flex, or you know, the the ancient Greeks had an awareness of sort of mechanics and they made sort of little little steam powered uh, brass globes that would spin around like tops. Uh, so they understood these things, and uh, you know Aristotle himself talks about the the tripods of Hephaestus in uh, in in ancient Greek uh, 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 polytheistic mythology, um, where you know they they sort of walked around on their own accord and brought the gods their you know ambrosia or whatever. Um, so these things were not alien to um, to ancient human beings, and for all the truth that I think was contained in, uh, in, in David Bowie's, I guess now fairly infamous, uh, BBC interview from, from 99, I think it was, uh, where, you know, the, the interviewer is like, well, isn't this just another tool, David? And, and he goes, oh no, this is an alien invasion. And, you know, he was right about that. Uh, even still though, you know, the, the, the thinkability of, of entities like this as overwhelming and disorienting as they are, um, is really something that's always been with us, and we need to recognize that you know these the the way in which these swarms of devices have flooded the world, however uncanny it may seem, uh, you know this is really something that that is not out of character for human beings to create. Uh, it's not something that's inconsistent with our humanity. Uh, it's just something that you know if we if we kind of give up on on maintaining our responsibility for their creation, uh, if we make the mistake of trying to worship them, if we make the mistake of trying to worship mathematics because we think that only math can give us perfect control over these machines, uh, that's going to throw us off track. And, you know, we're, we're off track right now for those reasons. Uh, and there's a better way. Now, the swarm. So kind of what I'm hearing, and I may be wrong here, is even before we get to the swarm, is that the way that computers are structured, the way that they're, the memory works in a computer, that is what is warping human minds and taking away some of the humanity. And you talk about, you know, dreams and intuition and stuff like that. The fact that we're becoming more connected to the, to these devices, we rely on them so much. Is that an argument you're making in that, that, that the kind of, we, we think they're a second brain, but in reality, they, they work in a completely different way. Well, I think we're very intimidated and frightened in a primal way by the sheer power and volume and accuracy of machine memory. Um, and I think that human beings, you know, are not fundamentally 
rational creatures, although obviously we do have access to reason and can use it in reasonable ways. Uh, fundamentally, we are we are memorious and imitative creatures. Uh, the thing that that makes us us and keeps us us is the fact that we have a, a, a unique and specific to our identity kind of memory, uh, and that we we uh, connect up our memories and our act of memory of memory making and 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 memory uh, sharing uh, with imitation. Um, and so when we're confronted with uh, these devices that you know are able to do things that until a few years ago were considered only to be uh, the, the attributes of um, uh, disembodied spiritual beings like demons or angels, you know, being everywhere at once, being in two different places at once, um, uh, being able to, to invisibly hide secrets and speak multiple languages. Uh, fly through the air, you know, easily pass through our bodies, uh, pass through our, the walls of our homes. Um, confronted with that, you know, radical d difference in identity and difference in capability, uh, I think people have become kind of fearfully jealous of our our digital technology and and are trying to imitate it in order to survive, in order to not kind of lose their grip on reality. Uh, and so that has made people prejudiced against human memory. It's imperfect. You know, this is sort of where like ancient hatreds live. Uh, you know, if we're stuck in the past, like we'll never be able to understand the future. And um, and really just, you know, I, I mean, the, the drumbeat coming out of way too many of these kind of ex-Googlers who are like, I made a mistake and I'm very sorry. And now you're stuck in this world. Uh, you know, a lot of them are basically say humanity sucks and we're building a new God with this technology. Um, and they're kind of worried about that, but, but humanity does not suck. I mean, we have powerful resources and we need to look on our human being uh, ultimately as a very precious and sacred gift. Uh, and, you know, we should focus on like humaxing on, on really remembering uh, just the sweep and scope and power uh, and authority of our capabilities um, and use those capabilities uh, to, to keep ourselves sane, but also, you know, to, to tell the bots what to do um, rather than uh, trying to program them to kind of like figure out uh, how to make the world, you know, run, make the trains run on time, but, but make everything into the trains. Uh, so, uh, you know, digital memory, it doesn't work like human memory, um, and, and it doesn't care about what humans care about. And so it can very, uh, mercilessly, um, as we all know, sort of like instantly bring back into the light things that we thought were hidden or that we wish could be hidden. Uh, you know, in Europe, you've got the like right to be forgotten movement. Um, you know, forgetfulness and memory are, are two sides of the same coin for, for human beings. Uh, the ability to forget the right things is an important part of human memory. And computers, you know, the, the, the digital swarm doesn't have that. And they are, they are indifferent to the consequences of remembering, recalling, bringing back into the present sort of anything that's, that's in the trail. And so, you know, that's, that's one reason why, why Bitcoin is so powerful and why the blockchain is so powerful and why it's so important that, you know, that ordinary people uh, really take hold of this technology and, and use it carefully and thoughtfully in ways that, you know, allow them to, to create culture that's meaningful and memorably human um, and, and and, uh, and share and exchange uh, and, and value it with one another. This is definitely a, a, a very pro Bitcoin podcast. So I'm glad you bring that up. But, you know, one, one point that I've thought about is 
you know, we're still so early in the computer revolution that we don't know how these computers have and will affect how the human mind works. And I think that's what you're working on and what you, it seems like that's what you're, you're trying to almost warn, warn people of is, is the alteration of the human mind. I mean, you know, for people that don't know the way that computer memory works is it's basically, you know, ones and zeros a bit is just a one or a zero, a uh, little, little uh, blip of electricity in the computer memory. Um, you know, eight bits is a byte. And then you have these codes that represent, uh, you know, what, what that represents and the computer reads it. And really it's just that memory and then a clock, right? But the, the human mind, you know, I can, I can hear a song that I haven't heard in a really long time. And then all of a sudden I can get the sensation of the smell that, I smelled, you know, you, you hear a, a song from Toby Keith that you haven't heard in a really long, long time. And all of a sudden you smell freshly cut grass because you were mowing the lawn the last time that you heard that song. Right. And that's something that, you know, ones and zeros against a clock can't do. Uh, and so, so that's, that's where I find this, this book and, and your argument really interesting is that, you know, there is value, a uh, tremendous amount of value in, the human mind and you know the the 80 some billion neurons that we all have how they connect the dots uh you know is 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 that something that you address in the book in terms of what the human mind can do that the book can or that that computers cannot specifically um or maybe the swarm i mean we got to get into what exactly the swarm is uh, but is that something that you address as like here are the concrete advantages and disadvantages of both sides? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, digital devices are not burdened with the, um, with the presence of a soul. Uh, so they don't really have to, you know, worry about or think through or talk about or center their behavior around, um, the, the care of the soul. Um, and human beings do. And, you know, one of the most important things that our memories do is, uh, is they keep present for us, the existence, the existence of our souls. Um, and they, uh, and they pass that wisdom on to future generations, you know, in time for them to, uh, remain sane as they go through puberty and become adults. Um, I think one of the most horrifying, uh, phenomena that we see today is that so many children, absolutely do not want to become adults. So many adults hate the fact that they are no longer children. Um, and you know, as, as usual in human history, like your, your mileage may vary as far as, as sex and sexuality is concerned, but you know, sex has clearly become online. Uh, one of these things that people are grabbing onto and sort of twisting in whatever shapes they think that they can to become more like, the digital devices that they feel so envious toward. Um, you know, I, th I think it's obvious that transsexuality has moved to the top of the prestige stack in sort of elite institutional ethics um, because it is right now the most powerful and in a sense, easy to understand way that human beings can, can use technology to radically transform 
their their biology to ra radically you know intervene in their natural identity and alter it according to will you know that is not really a sex change properly speaking it's a transformation from a human into a kind of transhuman uh, and there's a reason why, you know, transhumanism is um, at the forefront of, of so many conversations or kind of lurking in the background. Uh, it's because, you know, the, the message that we hear every day from our elite institutions uh, is that humanity is a problem. Our humanity is a problem. It is not adequate to solving human problems. Uh, it characterizes human problems as solvable. It characterizes our humanity itself as a problem that is solvable through uh, the marriage of the right kind of technology and the right kind of ethics. Uh, <clears throat> that ethics, you know, and I, I cover this in the book, uh, is is really one that uh, that rejects the existence of the soul and instead focuses on what's what's referred to as kind of the spark of consciousness. And you know, these are folks who, <laughs> if you try to nail them down on what exactly our consciousness is, they get a little squirrely. Uh, but really, what they say is. Um, you know, for, for whatever reason that we, we kind of evolved this spark of consciousness and it's the only force in the universe other than our, uh, our digital devices, uh, that is capable of, of making knowledge discoveries and, uh, retaining the, the information of that knowledge and propagating it and building off of it in the universe. Um, and so that, you know, that theological model is one where the spark of consciousness itself is not quite the object of worship uh, because it's really just kind of an artifact of materialist uh, development over, you know, gorillions of years. Um, so what is the object of worship? And well, it, you know, I think it, it clearly turns into just math itself. The idea that, you know, that, that math is ultimately the perfect language that can grant perfect knowledge of everything. Uh, personally, you know, I mean, just look at like quantum physics and when you drill down to the subatomic uh, level, you will discover that that no, in fact, um, uh, determinacy is an illusion, and mathematics is not sort of complete in its in its rational representation of the structure of reality. Um, and that's, I think, one reason why, uh, in a bad sense, people are primed to live in the metaverse because it's a mathematical construct and. It, uh, it is a way of escaping responsibility for living in a world that is not reducible to formulas. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's what's at stake between a kind of the theology of the soul uh, and a theology of, of, you know, of pure number or, or pure mathematics. Um, and that, that goes a long way toward explaining how it is that, you know, we are in sort of a, a cold digital culture war. There's a, there's a real fight going on right now uh, in the U.S., but across the broader West. Um, about how exactly, you know, which elements of Western civilization will be the ones that we use to kind of catechize uh, our devices into the, the new political and theological dispensation uh, to, to, to maintain us in a digital age. It's interesting that you, you bring up the, the culture war in, that, in those terms because it feels like you're, you're describing it on different planes that it's normally described in you know it's not just right versus left it's it's human versus technological which is not something that you hear every day i mean it makes me think of uh so i reread um the straussian moment by peter Thiel recently and he's got a line in there a representation of reality might appear to replace reality instead of violent wars there would be violent video games instead of heroic feet there could be thrilling amusement park rides instead of serious thought 
there could be intrigues of all sorts as in a soap opera. That 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 kind of just seems like a, a, a similar argument here. And it's it, it really that brings me back to um Postman and Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is one of my favorite books. And I mean, the metaverse is, is you're right, it's such a great example where it's it's even it's it doubling down on just forget about what's out there in reality. And was that line so was that line uh that I was going around Twitter, like if you die in the metaverse. You're, you die in real life. Like, did you see that? That I thought that that was uh, <laughs> a funny, you know, but but actually serious representation of like what's going on, right? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, Peter's obviously a sharp guy, and and I think that that line is is quite resonant with um, with what I'm unpacking in the book. Uh, I mean, it's already the ambition of many people to die in real life by living in the metaverse. Uh, we've been we've been sold this fantasy for a long time, and uh, and a lot of people, you know, I mean, you look at the way that uh, that industrial food has uh, disfigured the human body over the past 50 years. Um, you look at the way that education has increasingly been mobilized to to break the link of memory between generations uh, and within cultures um, and to, you know, substitute for those lost memories with, uh, with a, a, um, a novel system of ethics focused around emancipating the human spirit from the constraints of history and memory in the body. Um, the, there's been a lot of sort of preconditioning, I think, that has people uh, looking on their, their human lives in, in meat space as bad news, as a curse instead of a gift. Uh, and when people are primed in that way, you know, they are desperate for a substitute. Um, and we know throughout history that when uh, technology becomes, uh, you know, when, when technology substitutes for our capabilities instead of our, uh, let's see, how can I put this? Uh, it supplants our capabilities instead of supplementing our capabilities. Right. Uh, then we get ourselves into trouble and we end up regretting it. Um, and we mourn the loss of the humanity that was involved in that process. Uh, but the, you know, the demoralization campaign, the campaign of, of sort of institutionalized despair about um, our, our human identity uh, conditions people to want just that kind of, of substitute to supplant their capabilities, supplant their identity, escape uh, the work that has to go into being a human being uh, and being a flourishing human being uh, every day. Uh, it, again, I mean, you know, I, there's no cheese down that tunnel. And we've seen people attempt to uh, escape the burden and responsibility of of human life before you know during before the digital age and the electric age the electric age was all about the occult and coming on the heels of the print age which was all about reason you know that was that caused basically all of europe to completely lose its mind and almost commit you know collective suicide uh america did a lot better in the electric age we had a lot more room we had a sort of better conscience about about tinkering and and solving practical problems uh, and the electric age led to America's triumph over the world in a way that no regime had ever been able to do. Uh, one reason for that was because Europe, you know, went went into a tailspin. Uh, but now, you know, Americans really thought they were convinced that uh, we have the best uh, technologists and the best ethics, and so our techno ethics is the one that is going to uh, that is going to conquer the world. 
uh, we'll make the world into America and we'll all live happily ever after. And we'll do it through the power of these machines uh, that are, you know, that our very best technologists have built and that our very best ethicists will sort of program in the right way. Uh, and that's not what happened. Uh, it's been a really humiliating 20, 25 years for the United States of America uh, and our leadership, you know, those in charge. Uh, have all but admitted, you know, well, the financial system that we created, it doesn't really work anymore. Uh, you know, we we just printed a bunch of money that doesn't exist. And we, you know, basically went to negative net negative interest rates. Uh, and it still isn't really working. Um, and this is why we have all this talk of a great reset. You know, I'm sure like there are, are nefarious people in the upper bonds of, of world power, just as there are nefarious people in any small town. You know, you're always going to get some of those folks at, at any level. Uh, and the higher up they go, kind of the more, you know, crazy they get with ambition. We know this. But, you know, more importantly than that, even, um, is that, you know, the, the digital revolution has really torn the mask off of how... Uh, the the modern to postmodern international rules based order whatever you want to call it uh, just doesn't work um, even on its own terms um, and so that's a huge embarrassment for for those in charge and that's why they're scrambling so fast to do a great reset uh, but the reality is that like you know the these bots that they created slipped the leash uh, a number of years ago and uh, and it's digital technology itself that has that has reset um, uh, human experience. Uh, so, you know, that, that catastrophe that, that everyone talks about that's right around the bend, it already happened, you know, probably happened when the smartphone became a commodity. Uh, we're already living in that different world. That's why everything seems to be crumbling around us. And that's why, you know, we need to stay focused on, on building uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't start from year zero, uh, but does set us on uh, a foundation uh, that will allow us to remain human and, and remain sane going forward. Now, you mentioned that we've already been living in an abstracted reality for 50 years. You brought up the food supply, you're pro Bitcoin, bring up McLuhan. Is the ultimate medium the dollar? And how has the 1971 decision to get off a gold standard and now have a free floating currency that has basically just inflated everything, how has that played into what you're describing as the problem? Uh, if well, yeah, I mean, we, we know that the dollar, despite the fact that it's the, the world reserve currency is not kind of the ultimate measure of value because the dollar is the petrodollar, uh, and the, you know, the failure of the dollar over low these many years, the, the fiat dollar, uh, I think plays a huge role that of course, few wish to talk about. Um, in the way that uh, that you know anthropogenic climate change is being presented as a master crisis. Um, if the dollar sucks, the petrodollar sucks. And usually the way that it's characterized to us is, oh no, it's fossil fuels that suck. And so that's why we need to revolutionize the financial system. Uh, but the fact is, you know, like oil and gas still still work fine. I mean, you know, China is building so many coal-fired plants that you know we could ground like all of the airlines in the west and still kind of go sideways you know no one really wants to talk about like oh we'll just emp china and then climate change will be solved you know so it's, it seems clear that like what's really going on in all of the debates over climate change is really a debate over the world financial system uh and that the the leaders of the west have kind of <clears throat> run the 
the petrodollar into the ground, uh, not through, you know, through, well, they fracked too much or they sucked all the oil out of the ground and now the petrodollar is screwed, uh, but really just debasing the value of the currency and, you know, not just in a, a kind of numbers on the page sense, but in the sense of, of uh, creating an absurdity in the dollar in its in its scale that is beyond the the ability of normal people to to process as something real and so the you know the the full faith and credit of the american people in the dollar is is crumbling i mean you just you know take five seconds to look at crypto markets and that is what that story is uh and that's why gary gensler and the sec and the biden administration wants to claw you know cryptocurrencies into the the regulatory tent um Americans need a Second Amendment for compute. Americans need to be able to buy and use high-powered GPUs. They need to be able to mine uh, Bitcoin. They need to be able to uh, to invent and and utilize cryptocurrencies. Uh, and it, because if they can't do that, then they can't participate in a digital regime. They can't participate in anything that resembles, you know, our our form of government. Anything that sustains our way of life. You know, anything that sustains ultimately our human identity. Uh, that's that's what these conflicts are about. And you know, when it comes to to, to peeling the dollar off of the gold standard, uh, Nixon found himself in a position where you know inflation wasn't wasn't going away. Just sort of kept kept ramping up. Uh, where you know formerly destroyed uh, post World War II economies were uh, recovering, Germany and Japan you know getting stronger and and uh, and the the balance of the the world economy was shifting uh, in a way that put pressure on the value of the dollar. And as uh, as countries that had survived World War II barely uh, found themselves you know starting to to get back up on their feet. Um, they took a look at the dollar as the world reserve currency and they said, well, you know what, like we just we're going to call our gold back in. Remember when we gave you our gold because uh, Hitler was chewing up our country? Well, you know, that is now far enough in the past that we want the gold back. And uh, that promised a um, a run on, you know, the uh, the potential future uh, financial system that would be created if uh, if the dollar lost its prestige in that sense, um, and so you know Nixon uh, was was under the influence of a couple of guys. I think you know John John Connolly was Secretary of Treasury at that time, and you know his attitude was uh, "f it," you know, just you know, uh, go fiat and we'll be legends. Uh, and it, you know, kind of worked for a while. Um, and then by the time you know Carter came around, it was working not so great. The, the financial system as we know it has been just kind of trying to, to make it through from one minute to the next for a long time. Uh, and, and a lot of that ramp has been used up. Um, and I think, you know, gold is still here. Uh, and, uh, and Bitcoin uh, came on the scene uh, in a way that the, the system could not anticipate uh, much in the same way that, you know, we have Five Eyes, supposedly the greatest and best intelligence network in human history and it's just been one shock after the next for for poor five eyes to the point where americans see you know the the american experience with with uh western intelligence is turning into one where it's like well you know you guys can't figure out what's going on in china and you always get surprised when you know the bad guys do things so you're kind of using all of your power to just micromanage our lives and just you know turn on turn us into the focus of your activity rather than the bad guys. Uh, so all that's wrapped up in what's going on with the dollar. I, you know, I think the dollar is in a, in a very dangerous position right now, uh, and that for all the talk of climate change, you know, what's what's really going on is not about emissions. It's about uh, the, the the breaking of the mystique around the dollar. 
Yeah, and, and to just you know, for the audience members that don't aren't familiar with the the petrodollar, uh, you know, you told half the story there, where the you know the Europeans recalled their gold, France sent their battleships to to come get it, Nixon got us off the gold standard, and uh, in order to preserve the value of the dollar, what they did was cut a deal where all oil contracts would be denominated in U.S. dollars. So if you wanted to buy oil, which everyone does, you have to hold dollars, which artificially. Uh, inflates the value of the dollar, which works. Hey, it worked great for us as Americans for a while. But as you said, they just they just continued to uh, print away, and uh, now the the as we're seeing it in real time as we're talking, um, the value of the dollar declined six over six percent in one calendar year. So you have a hundred dollars now. You have ninety three ninety basically ninety three and a half dollars, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it is. That, that to me is is, is for sure, uh, as, as listeners of this podcast know, a, a very big issue. And I think it's interesting how it ties into the work that you're doing. Um, so as kind of a, a direct question, and we really, we haven't really dived into the swarm that much, but, you know, direct question is, is what, what is your solution? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we've talked a little bit about um, how Bitcoin can work as a solution, uh, like Machiavelli has this famous passage in The Prince <clears throat> where he says, basically, fortune is like a, a woman or, you know, maybe even like a, a whore, let's say. Um, he doesn't say it that explicitly, but he, you know, he does speak with very, you know, charged language about how the prince needs to slap fortune around like a woman and how, you know, fortune will obey uh, and yield to the prince that knows how to slap her around most forcefully. Uh, you know, obviously very politically incorrect, possibly triggering language, depending on who you are. We don't, we don't condone that on our, on this podcast. No, we don't, we don't condone (laughs) slapping anyone around in order to get, to get sex. (laughs) We do not condone that. Um, but the point that he was trying to make is that if, uh, if political actors sort of sit back and hope that events unfold in a way that will favor them. Um, that's not just like a, a bad bet, but it is, you know, arguably like a dereliction of your duty as someone who presents themselves as having some authority to rule. Uh, and there's something similar going on with technology. So, you know, if, if and a lot of people are demoralized and confused, they feel like they, they're not smart enough for this stuff or like whatever is happening is, has, is kind of already baked in. <clears throat> It's really not that way, uh, but but they they become passive and they kind of just you know why is everyone scrolling through social media? It's maybe because infinite scroll is like addiction forming or whatever. But what they want is they want to to recognize the the new patterns of life that are emerging under digital conditions, which the you know the the official or quasi official press or media is not telling them anything valuable about. You, t- you put on CNN, it's not like 1991 where you're like, oh my God, like I need to see what's going on in the, the Gulf War, like right now, like you turn on CNN and you get the information or at least, you know, at least a version of the information. Uh, but right now, you know, the media is performing a much different function as an institution. Uh, and so people are just waking up and going straight into scrolling through social media because they're trying to glean some kind of, of heuristic or, uh, or, or environmental consciousness that allows them to make sense of the unfolding world. Uh, and in the, the limits of that approach are real, um, but it's better than nothing. 
Um, and, and even though it is better than nothing, it still leaves most people incredibly passive. Uh, they're not founding companies. They're not getting involved in, in Bitcoin, although, although the, those numbers are going up. Uh, and, uh, and we need to shake people out of this trance and we need to, uh, help them understand that, you know, technology is not neutral. It's not, um, it's not. It's not like the scales of justice, you know. It's different than that. It's more active than that. Um, and yet, at the same time, you know, if we slap it around, so to speak, in you know, in a good sense, um, not feeling so bad because, after all, these are just technologies, not other human beings. Um, you know, we should we should encourage and show ordinary people how they can really take control of compute and make it do things that are going to strengthen their position rather than make them feel more passive. Things that are going to give them the feeling of having both feet on the ground of the digital world so that they can return to doing things like practicing citizenship instead of just, you know, staring at the screens and hoping that that the truth sort of bubbles up to the surface for them. Are you offering or proposing any any specific public policies? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, with regard to uh, to Bitcoin, I, I had a an op ed in the New York Times uh, that just ran um, Sunday uh, in the in the print uh, edition, which was uh, kind of fun. I don't know if it counts as a relic yet, but it was it was fun nevertheless. Uh, and I get into some of the, the policy stuff there. Uh, you know, I, I mean, there are there are intelligent people out there who are saying things like we just need to ban cryptocurrencies you know that's this threatening the dollar and you know we for for the good of the american people we need a, a a strong dollar um there are folks you know at the sec who are interpreting uh you know nfts where where everyone gets a cut every time that you know everyone involved in the transaction gets a cut every time the NFT is resold oh that's a security so it needs to be regulated by us well, you know, you look at something like FINRA and like even FINRA has like a like a like a woke commissar like buried in its infrastructure right now. And, you know, you can argue politically about wokeness or whatever. But uh, but really, you know, the, the government's um, approach in the making to dealing with uh, the digital uh, crisis is to more or less adopt an, a new official religion. Uh, and force people to to kneel before those doctrines uh, in order to participate in uh, the financial system. Uh, that is that is inconsistent with with the American way of life. You know, we can have sort of impassioned ideological debates about the details, but at the highest level, you know, this is a radical, fundamental change in the offing in our form of government uh, toward a sort of social credit system with a digital, you know, backed by a digital dollar, which is really just sort of a point system. Uh, you do the right things, you say the right things, your points go up. You do the wrong things, say the wrong things, your points go down. You know, the, the, I, I've seen the meme videos on TikTok. Like the kids are all over this. They make fun of China for doing this. They make fun of John Cena, you know, oh, social credit, infinity points, because he's singing about how Taiwan's part of China. They understand what's going on, you know, better than uh, uh, a lot of people, you know, in, in the federal government themselves. Um, and so, you know, policy, I think, needs to begin from uh, a recognition that uh, that social credit is incompatible with uh, with our way of life, with our form of government. Um, there are, are other and better ways of, uh, of gaining some control back over our, our digital machines and, you know, protecting our humanity as well as protecting us from, you know, rival 
uh, wagers that other civilizations might be making. You know, China, India, Russia, Israel, these, these civilization states have no qualms. They feel no embarrassment about taking their own side civilizationally and doing the work to make sure that, you know, their, their civilization uh, and its deepest resources are, are used uh, to uh, ensure that their people can remain their people in their identity, even under digital conditions. So, you know, if, if the feds aren't going to do this or they can't move fast enough uh, or there's there's too much of a power struggle going on in Washington, uh, the states need to step up. Some of them are stepping up already. Florida, Texas and others, uh, you know, I mean, the, they're, they're obviously like red state, blue state differences going on here. But there's a more fundamental difference than that. And it used to be the case, you know, in, in living memory it wasn't that long ago when uh, when if you wanted uh, a politics focused around protecting our humanity from uh, from alienation and sort of domestication by super powerful corporations that had, you know, lost any sort of sense of loyalty to the people and were connected with parts of the government where, you know, everyone who was in charge was not a, an elected official and could not be thrown out through through the democratic process. You know, if that was kind of your concern, that puts you on the political left. Uh, not that long ago. Um, and nowadays, it, it's more likely to put you on the political right. So, you know, these left and right, red and blue categories, they exist for for reasons. Um, I'm not here to pretend that they don't exist or that they're based in nothing, uh, but they're more fluid than people give it credit for. And the digital shift has has shaken things up. Uh, you know, we're we're best off, you know, yeah, you, you can have your political opinions, uh, even even if they're bad opinions. You know, this is America. You You should have them and you should talk about them. Uh, but we got to recognize, you know, what's really at stake here is about much more than that. It's it's about giving ordinary people the ability to remain Americans under digital conditions. And that's going to require new policies protecting uh, uh, Americans use of those most powerful technologies. It is wild how rapidly the political positions of the right and left and, and Democrat and Republican parties have shifted. If you search you know, videos, you know, 2008 immigration policy, or you name it a uh, different issue. It's just, it's incredible how quickly they're, they're shifting. And I don't know, it seems to me that's probably on par with what you're describing of how technology has, has kind of sped everything up. But I mean, I like, I, I like the, you know, I, I think kind of what you're, you're getting across here is, you know, this computers are a tool. And just like a hammer, you can either build a house or you can take the hammer and you can whack somebody in the head with it. <laughs> either way, uh, it's it, it's our choice of what we do with that tool. Um, so it could be powerfully for good or powerfully for bad, right? Is that well, yeah, and, and it can be used as a, as a weapon as well. I mean, I think one of the things that's made life tough under digital conditions uh, is that the offense-defense imbalance has been just r ridiculously tilted in favor of offense? You know, one of the reasons, just to be to be generous to Five Eyes for a minute, one of the reasons that these guys keep struggling and, and looking ridiculous and probably turning in frustration to you know to interfering in, in domestic politics in their own countries is simply because uh, a digital defense is very difficult. I mean, any sort of like infosec cybersecurity person knows that you kind of don't know well how well your system is working until it's under attack. You know, you kind of have to like learn on the job uh, and um, and having a, a powerful defense is so challenging and costly that it's just easier to opt for like, well, we'll just hit them back harder than they hit us. Uh, that's why you got cyber cybersecurity. Yeah. And that's why, you know, you got Biden out there in Russia, just just basically saying like, look, can we, you know, can we agree just to like not keep trading punches? because it's so difficult to do defense right. Um, that's one of the powerful things 
about Bitcoin is it can be used as a defensive weapon uh, where, you know, where ordinary folks can uh, can make sure that technology isn't used in a way to impose and, and really entrap them inside of a, of a, a total social credit state. Um, so yeah, you know the, the tool can be used as a weapon in a in a sort of new way that I think is very helpful, um, and that's you know, that's a contrast to to what we've all sort of grown up with and lived in, which is uh, weapons, digital weapons being used as tools. I mean, every single thing that you have in front of you, technologically more or less, from cable television to GPS to touch touch screen technology. Um, is all spin-offs of military industrial stuff. You know, it's military intelligence, basic research, government writing blank checks, developing all this stuff, and then spinning it off uh, into basically consumer electronics. I mean, that's that's sort of the story of Apple's success is they looked at all this stuff and they realized that if they basketed it together and skinned it with something that looked really cool and futuristic, then, then people would be entranced and would put it to use. Uh, and that was a way for them to make a ton of dough. And, and they did. I mean, you look at, you know, the, the way that federal uh, security um, agencies uh, have succeeded in, in turning these weapons into tools uh, gave the U.S. a huge advantage coming out of the gate in technological development, uh, an advantage that the folks in charge thought would allow them to rule the world. That's not the way that it happened. But, you know, m most of people's experiences with technology is kind of like the, the barbarian sitting down with his, uh, you know, axe and his, uh, his mace and trying to, you know, eat the, the mutton chops. Uh, using his weapons as tools. Uh, that's, you know, that that's kind of hard to sustain culturally. And I think a lot of people are hungry for, you know, a different way of interacting with technology, one where uh, they can use tools as defensive weapons instead of using offensive weapons as tools. Last question, because I know we got to get you out of here, is what would you say to, to, so, to people who would just say that you're, you're a Luddite? <laughs> well, no, I mean, look, uh, one of those guys on the left who now sounds more like a kind of extreme righty is Ted Kaczynski. And, uh, you know, Ted Kaczynski's idea was like, well, you, uh, at the end of the day, you just have to start blowing shit up. Maybe it's blowing, blowing up factories. Maybe it's blowing up people. Uh, you know, he tried to blow up David Glernter, one of our sort of most uh, provocative uh, uh, media theorists of, of digital technology. Uh, didn't you know was wasn't able to to knock him out completely. Uh, Galanter you know went went right on theorizing about this stuff uh, in in a controversial way. But you know I think the, the point is you know it's in a digital age it's hard to even understand what uh, what like violent luddism would involve. It's not like you can just throw a wooden shoe into the, the gears in the factory and then you shut down production. Um, it's not even like blowing things up necessarily gets you what you want. Uh, you know, we, we went through a, a, an age of global terror and what effect did it really have other than like basically bankrupting the United States? Like, yeah, that, that had an effect, but, uh, but we're kind of back to square one in a certain respect, you know, Taliban's on Twitter and, uh, and the, the mood of, of, um, of global terrorism has, has kind of passed away as uh, digital circumstances have, have changed the way in which you need to wage a conflict in order to win. Uh, so, you know, at, at a first cut, it's just not even clear to me sort of like what kind of direct action a Luddite could take that would actually be consequential. You know, I, I think punching back at the people you see as bad guys 
um, is not really going to be effective. And that's, you know, that's why, why common people need to come together to actually build stuff and institutions and practices, you know, cultural practices that strengthen their civilization, strengthen their memory, strengthen the, the inheritance of their people, um, and do so in a proactive way using technology, uh, rather than, you know, trying to just grind the system to a halt. So no to violence and yes to building. Yes. That's uh, I think that's a, that's a good message. Um, all right, great. So just one more time, uh, so people don't have to rewind here. Where can they find the book to go buy? Uh, go to uh, humanforever.us. Sign up. Uh, the NFTs and the sales will be will be dropping very soon. Uh, if you want to be uh, among the first to know, humanforever.us. And uh, I am on Twitter at James Polis. Uh, that's James P O U L O S. If you want to uh, bother me with any questions or whatever, uh, DMs are open. You know, uh, no guarantees that I will answer you if you are insane, but uh, I do. I do welcome comments and feedback and conversations. Awesome, and I'll link to all that in the show notes. So thanks for coming on, James. Hey, a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. 